Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Usually when we talk about Purim Torah, it is making fun of something. Um, and so people mangle Kiddush and throw other lines from other prayers in there and do all kinds of fun things for Purim Torah. But that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing actual Purim Torah. So we're actually going to look at Torah from this week and how it connects uh, to the story of Purim, to the Megillah. So this is our Purim Torah study, and um, it, it is rare that we are together on Purim Actual um, to study together. So this is a, a rare treat. The, uh, the story of Purim, of course, uh, is found in the Megillah, and we, um, we look at the, at the story generally as some kind of, um, either people want to make it historical, so this is referencing a certain, um, a certain king and a certain danger that happened with the Jews of Shushan. Um, other people um, look at it as purely fictional. And if you look at it as purely fictional, of course, the question becomes, um, what is the motive of the author for writing the Megillah, for writing this story? And those, with you, those of you who have learned with me before know what my preferred take on this is. Um, and my preferred interpretation of, of the agenda, if you will, of the Megillah is that it is written for Jews who did not return after the first exile. The Jews are exiled in 586 from Israel after the destruction of the temple. They are given like 50 years later, Cyrus allows them to return to uh, Jerusalem and many, many, most, most of the exiled Israelites did not return. And they could have. So um, they stay in Babylonia where life was pretty good. And they have, they, they mix in very well with Babylonian society and, um, and the ideas of the Babylonian Academy. And this is of course where all of our famous uh, Talmudic scholars will be raised is in the yeshiva, in the Beit Midrash, in the house of study, in the academy. So this is, this is what, where the Jews are moving is towards this idea of study and of that being sacred service and away from the attachment to the temple and the priesthood as their major way of engaging with the God of Israel. So it's not to say they don't still send money to the temple. They do. Um, they still send money for sacrifices or for what would be the equivalent of the, the crop that they were supposed to bring on a pilgrimage festival. So they still support the temple system, but it has ceased to be really their main way of interacting with, um, with the God of Israel. And so, um, so there are Jews in Jerusalem who are upset about this who are very upset about this and who are saying, why are you choosing to live in the diaspora instead of in Jerusalem? And why aren't you back here rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple? And you all think you've got it so good in Babylonia. You think you're a Babylonian now. You think you fit in. Well, 
They may treat you like that right now, but all it takes is one bad apple at the top of the administration and you're toast. So you think you're so metropolitan and you think you fit in in New York so well. Well, let me tell you, it takes one. And we, we've seen a few, haven't we? Um, even in this country, it just takes one at the top to change everything. And so there are some who believe, and I am of this persuasion, that this is actually the poor Megillah. The whole story is a parody it is a parody of the life of the Israelites who are choosing, the Jews who are choosing to stay in Babylonia. Look at the gods of Babylonia, Marduk and Ishtar. <coughs> Marduk is the chief god. Ishtar is the goddess. You can't, you can't not hear Mordechai and Esther when you hear Marduk and Ishtar. So there are those of us who believe that this is a parody. It is meant to lift up for the Jews in Babylonia, how dangerous and precarious their situation is. Um, and then it ends, of course, with a Jewish fantasy of, um, of getting back at the villain, hanging him and his 10 sons. And the part that we tend not to read at the end of the Megillah is that the Jews take revenge uh, and slaughter people in the streets of Shushan. We don't generally read that in the religious school. We tend not to read that to our third graders, um, but it is in fact there. It's a fantasy, right? Of a powerless people, um, a tiny people having this fantasy of um, taking revenge on the great power um, that they are living, have been living under. And now some of them have left and gone back to uh, sovereignty. All right. Or not sovereignty because they don't, they're not sovereign yet, but Okay. I mean, anymore. So let's look at, I want to, so I'm going to show you, we're going to look at the text from Titzave, and we're going to look at how some folks tie this to Purim. So you're going to make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron, lechavod ultif aret, for dignity and for adornment. You shall instruct all who are skillful, who, skillful who I have endowed with the gift of skill to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are people who are described in Hebrew as wise of heart. These are the people who are to make these vestments. These are the vestments they are to make. A breastpiece, an aphod, a robe, a fringed tunic, a headdress, and a sash. So in Hebrew, choshen, ephod, me'il, and ketonet. So these are, these are the terms that, um, that we are familiar with, those of us who know about the clothing of the high priest. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen worked into designs. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends, and the decorated band shall be made of it, one piece with it of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen. Two lazuli stones engrave on them the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on the one, the remaining six on the other, in order of their birth. On the two stones you shall make seal engravings, the work of a lapidary, of the names of the sons of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold. 
attach the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the aphod as stones for remembrance for the Israelite people whose names Aaron shall carry upon his two shoulder piece for remembrance before Yudhei So here it is in the Hebrew. I can't get the text next to each other. I don't know why I tried. Um, anyway. All right. So then, so you see these, these familiar terms, those of us who study the Mishkan are very used to these terms. We're used to these colors. We're used to the technical terms for what it is that Aaron's going to wear. And this is all for, and, and the, it's for Kavod and for Tifared. It is for beauty and for adornment. Um, the remembrance here, Lazikaron, the names that uh, Aaron carries of the people of the 12 tribes into the Holy of Holies, um, Lazikaron, to be a remembrance. So we're not really sure. Everyone has their opinions about what that means. What, God is going to forget Israel? Is Aaron going to forget Israel? Like, well, who's, for whose remembrance? What does that even mean? But we're not going there today. We're going somewhere else. All right. So from Exodus 28, 34, 35, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. Aaron shall wear it while officiating so that the sound of it is heard when he comes into the sanctuary before Yudhei and when he goes out that he may not die. All right. So hopefully you're already starting to make some connections. Yeah. Okay. Well, if not, don't worry. That's what I'm here for. All right, so let's go to the Megillah, chapter one of the Megillah, beginning at verse five. He's, he's having a banquet, the king, right? The king's palace, the king in his palace. Think about Mishkan. Think about the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? That is the place for God's presence. So the king is in his palace in the garden, right? For all the people who lived uh, in the fortress of Shushan, high and low alike, there were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool to silver rods and alabaster columns. And there were couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble, alabaster, mother of pearl and mosaics. Royal wine was served in abundance as befits a king in golden beakers of varied design. And the rule for drinking was no restrictions. In addition, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women, and then he calls her to dance, right, for uh, him and his people, and she refuses. He gets mad and really, really mad. Okay. So, So we see here some things that should sound a bit familiar to us. Blue wool, cords of fine linen and purple wool, silver rods. Remember, remember how the Mishkan is put together with with silver um, fixings and um, gold, all of the implements in the, in the Mishkan would have been gold and or silver. That is what we're seeing here. We are seeing the exact same words used to describe the palace and the implements in the palace of King Ahasuerus. All right. Who, who is the Mishkan for? Whose presence is that for? The king of kings. Aharon is supposed to wear these royal colors and these royal fabrics and these royal patterns um, to serve the king of kings. And now we're getting a description of the palace of the king of Shushan. 
Now we know, looking at Esther 4, everyone knew that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law for him, that he be put to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words, right? Mordecai wants her to go see the king. She says, I haven't been called 30 days. We know what happens if you go into the king's inner chamber without permission, you, you die. Then Mordecai bade them to return, answer unto Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then will relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house will perish and who knoweth whether thou art not come to royal estate for just such a time as this. So Mordechai is saying, don't think you're going to escape if all the Jews are murdered and we may be saved somewhere else, but you're not going to be safe. <clears throat> and, and this is your, how do we not know that you became queen in order to do exactly this? The danger is going into the inner chamber without being called, without permission. This is exactly what we, we just referenced with the bells on the priestly garment is to announce the priest. And the priest is not allowed, as we know, into the Holy of Holies, except once a year at Yom Kippur. And if he goes in any other time, he dies. And even going in on the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, it is extremely dangerous to go in there. So, um, so very much a parallel here with the danger of Esther going into the inner um, dwelling, if you will, the innermost dwelling of the king without permission. Same for Aharon going into the uh, inner chamber of the king that is in the Mishkan. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the entrance. And it came. So this, this is what we're told from the Megillah that Esther put on her royal apparel, but that's not what it says. It says here and Esther dressed in royalty. It should have said in royal garments. So the, the, uh, the Midrash understands that and says, Esther, as it is written, and it came to pass on the third day that es- Esther dressed herself in royalty. Shouldn't it say garments of royalty? Rather, she dressed herself in the Holy Spirit. So ma- making the connection here that she, she dresses in the Holy Spirit, this is what protects her. The Ruach HaKodesh, right here. All right. And this is from um, DNJ Cohen, masking and unmasking ourselves. Esther's royal garments gave her a facade of power and authority that was necessary as she presented herself publicly. The link between clothing and political power is something we witness every day in politics that has always been apparent in human life. 
Interestingly, in describing the royal garments that Esther wore, the text actually says that Esther wore kingship, machut, when we would have expected it to read Esther dressed in royal garments. The royal garments made up of beautiful robes, a train of pure gold, and the finest of ornaments may have masked the anxiety she must have felt as she stood in the inner courtyard waiting for the king to extend his scepter, inviting her to approach his throne. Nevertheless, the clothing both symbolized her position as queen and underscored the new identity she had assumed. She now acted forcefully as befits both the queen of the palace and the leader and protector of her people. Why does Aaron need such fancy clothes? Why does Aaron need to be dressed in royal garments? So possibly it's part of what we're seeing here. Is it wearing those clothes of royalty gave both Esther and in our context in Exodus, uh, the high priest, Aaron, the courage to go into dangerous situations dealing with the most powerful force there was in their world. For Aaron, that is Yudhe for uh, For Esther, that of course is the king. They are both dangerous, these powers, and they can also grant amazing things, which is why you take the risk to go in there. And it may be that these clothes help give both of them the courage and the trust that they, that they have this role, that this is Aaron's just becoming high priest, right? Esther's just become queen so that they have to, it helps them live into, if you will, the authority and therefore the audacity that it's going to take for each of them to enter into the inner chamber of the king and be effective at uh, working essentially on behalf of the people. Okay. Any of you who have ever had to go into any kind of scary situation, any kind of interview, those heels make all the difference. Right? Deb's laughing. She get right. The shoes you choose to wear to that interview is right. Everything. Uh, heels have always helped me when I've gone to an interview. See, see, thank you for the affirmation there. Okay. Bob. All right. So now let's look at the other way that we're going to tie these two together. And it's, and this is, by the way, is not coincidence. There are many of us who believe that is the point of the parody is to use the, the dress of the high priest, right? At, to make that connection, that it's on purpose, that it's these same words that are used. So, so what happens with Mordechai? Mordechai, remember, he, he's, uh, the king asks, what are, what are we supposed to do for the person who has, who has pleased the king, right? The king asks this of Haman, and Haman thinks it's him. So he thinks of the greatest thing of th- that he could imagine. And of course, it is not him. It is Mordechai that the king is wanting to reward for saving the king's life. Remember, Mordechai hears a plot to, to kill the king, and he stops the plot, and he exposes the killers, the would-be assassins. So he's rewarded with this. Mordechai left the king's presence in royal robes of blue and white with a magnificent crown of gold and a mantle of fine linen and purple wool, and the city of Shushan rang with joyous cries. So this should very much remind us of the garments of 
Aharon that we just saw. He wears uh, a, a headdress with gold uh, on the front, right? And of course, the the colors here very much uh, similar. This shade of blue, even today, only a king of nations would wear it. And in Esther, it is written, and Mordechai left. We just read that quote. And this wrap is the robe, the me'il, that he wrapped himself in. The me'il is the coat that the high priest wore. So that, that same language is being used uh, in talking in the Megillah about Mordechai. Mordechai, in other words, is dressed in the distinct royal blue that is first mentioned in the priestly clothing, not to mention the same purple. And even, Nachmanides says, Mordechai's wrap, his me'il, is actually the same kind of robe that the priests wore. So there is some connection Nachmanides sees between Mordechai and the high priest, at least in the symbolic language of their garb. But what does it mean? How is Mordechai like a priest? In fact, he is primarily a political activist, while the high priest's role is purely spiritual, almost completely cut off from social matters. They seem to operate in entirely different realms. But we know that's not true, right? Or it wouldn't go on. But... We might wonder if this isn't precisely the point Nachmanides is leading us toward. There is something holy about political action and conversely, something liberating in the spiritual atonement that the high priest offers. What seemed like mere ornamentation turns out to be a protection against the overwhelming and potentially lethal power of God's inner sanctuary. These bells are a way of sounding a warning and thereby gaining divine permission to enter and exit. The terror of this work becomes clear, but so too does the willingness of these priests of the Lord to undertake the danger on behalf of the people. And that is where Nachmanides again sees a connection to a scene in the book of Esther. The bells on the priestly robe, he writes, are meant so the priest can go in before his master as if taking permission for one who comes into the king's house is subject to death at the order of the king, as we see with Achashverosh. The scene to which Nachmanides refers is the one in which Mordechai has implored Esther to speak on behalf of her people, right? And we see, that, again, this quote where she says, you can't without being killed, just as the high priest sanctified though he is, fears death when he walks into the divine king's home, so does Esther, intimately familiar though she is with King Achashverosh, still fears the consequences of treading into his personal space without permission. She is scared, and she has good reason to be. The king is a whimsical tyrant whose moods and decisions are entirely unpredictable. Yet Mordechai doubles down and encourages her to push past her fears and speak out on behalf of her people. We read that quote from the... Megillah, Mordechai, who will one day wear the priestly colors himself, is here telling Esther, who was truly the high priestess of this tale, that she must enter the inner court of her king despite her fears, just as the priests of old risked death as they entered into God's space once a year on behalf of the people. They did so unquestioningly because this was their position. They had been chosen for just such a task. We are given status, Mordechai indicates to Esther, so that we can serve. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and there will come a time when every one of us will be called upon to stand before the king on behalf of the people. That is perhaps the lesson that the priests of Parshat Tetzaveh have to lend the Purim story. Their constancy and commitment, their willingness to sacrifice themselves if necessary, 
their belief in the inherent sanctity of their task. These are powerful ethics we might well import from our spiritual lives into our politics. We could use a dose of priestly devotion at those times when the fight for justice is most overwhelming and we are terrified of what might happen next. What do we do in those moments? We wrap ourselves in in chavod and tifaret, in honor and splendor. We ring the bell to warn that we are coming and we walk in to perform the holy work of liberation. Boom. All right, people, what are y'all talking about? Let's see. What are you talking about? I love that. Isn't that great? That connection is incredible. It's a, it's when I first learned it, I was like, Whoa, how did I not see this all of these years of celebrating Purim and reading it around the the time of the Parsha? Like, how did I not see this before? Um, But exactly. She is the high priestess and using, and we see over and over and over all of the colors, all of the technical language for the, the, the priestly garments that she's going to wear, that Mordechai is going to wear that. And there's a King and the inner court and the inner chamber and the danger of that. Um, all of that very much on purpose, uh, I believe now, um, f- so that the, so that the writer, um, the writer's going to people who know this, right? The writer of the Megillah is talking to people who know these texts and who knows, who know, who know that that splendor and these colors and these, the Me'il and the Kutonet and the crown, all of that is for um, the glory of God. And here, of course, it's for the glory of the king alone, the human king, right? With no other uh, point or purpose. And so, yeah. Uh, Barry saying, I hear that in some schools on the West Coast, students are not allowed to wear red or blue to school. I have not heard that. Um, and definitely this ties to the Kabbalistic idea of Mahut for sure, tongue in cheek. Esther and Liz Cheney have a lot in common. Okay. Love that. So, right. So the, the <laughs> courage, right. To act uh, in, in right. ways one feels is, is called for and is ethical. Um, right. I have a Talit that I bought in Jerusalem that has blue and purple in it. Yes. And right. the, blue, the blue mentioned here is Tehillat, which is the same as what is supposed to be in a talit. Correct. Patil tchelet, a thread of tchelet is supposed to be in the tzitzit until the rabbis ruled it out. And there's arguments about why the rabbis got rid of it. Some people want to say it's because it was so expensive. That dye to make that was so expensive. I don't buy it. I agree with scholars who say Jews were getting too attached to the blue thread as a kind of magical... uh, as magic and the rabbis couldn't have that you can't have that not in rabbinic judaism god forbid so um so that had to go because the, the jews were getting way too attached to the tzitziot as some kind of talisman and the blue as this magical element and so the rabbis got rid of it that makes sense to me um judith you have your hand up yes am i unmuted you are okay I think um, there's an awful lot of bravery of tongue here, of being willing to speak up. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with the unlimited wine. 
the that wine loosens the tongue. Uh huh. And mm-hmm. that's part of the re- required elements. One of the required elements for the the dinner. Right, and thus tongues are looser. Right, and they have increased bravery because of that as well. Right, could be, could be. Um, but presumably, she's going to speak to Achashverosh sober. She's not been partying, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but, but right, we certainly can- use that as a way to free ourselves from the strictures of society. That's why right. it's such a popular holiday. I think. <laughs> <laughs> right carnival um exactly and maybe that's where the carnival came from all right In so i have that two people have raised their hand i saw judith i don't see the other one who else has their hand up two participants raised hands deb deb scott deb where are you i'm <laughs> on my screen i'm right to the left of you but oh yeah now i go, now i see you <laughs> To me, I look at I I look at it as it's you know early on it talks about being vigilant and we you know you have these garments that are reminders and we take our people with us and we need to be vigilant. But then also that vigilance requires action in addition to it. So we can't just keep these to ourselves and carry them with us. We need to also look at the bigger picture and those acts of bravery, regardless of whether they happen within a community or within the wider society, that we are obligated to um, hold ourselves accountable and then those as well so that we have a, you know, it's, and then it goes back, I just tied into the, the mitzvot that, you know, that we are obligated to create a more just world. So. Nice. And, and Mordechai really says it straight out, right? That how do you know you weren't given this position for exactly this moment, right? And so whatever that is for each of us, whatever authority you have, wherever you have it, you must use it to build a more just and equitable society. You must use it to protect the vulnerable. You must use it to stand up, right? In the ways that you can. Um, And sometimes that's dangerous, and but we're you know called to it anyway, right? The high priest, it's dangerous. We've seen it, right? Look at Nah, look at Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, right? Who are consumed, right, by the fire that goes out from before Yudhevavhe. So he's actually seen it happen um, to his own kids, his own sons, and so it's not it's not make believe in his world. He's he lost two sons to it. And, and yet he's got to go in there because that's the work is to take the risk, to take the chance and, and use whatever authority, whatever position um, we have, you might call that gifts or talents or whatever, but that, um, and certainly, I mean, I, you know, to your point, Deb, it's, it's also kind of about our status as, you know, well-connected white people (laughs) and, which you know a lot of a lot of work is being done right now on this idea that um that Jews are seen by some obviously as not white you know we're seen by white supremacists as not white um but that we also have to own the fact that we have power that we are white 
Americans who have access to the halls of power and to resources, and we are very uncomfortable seeing ourselves that way. We are very uncomfortable as a people. Yeah, but they try to kill us. Yeah, but they try to kill us. Yeah, but they try to kill us, right? We're very uncomfortable owning our privilege and our power. Um, and that is not to say they're not trying to kill us. Yes, some of them are. But we also we also have incredible access to, to the halls of power. Um, and we're going to have to, as a people, start to reckon with what that means. Um, and we're not there yet. We're starting that conversation internally, but... But we're not there. Um, so, all right, I'll stop there. Um, anybody else? Sarah Moskowitz, speak. Merritt Garland this week did just that. He spoke about his parents coming <clears throat> from Russian anti-Semitism and tearing up. He spoke about his assuming the role of the Chief Justice of the United States to do good. And there you have it. <laughs> there it is in a nutshell, says Sarah Moskovitz. All you had to do is turn on the news this week, right? To flee from anti-Semitism, the United States took his family in. Um, it, was a, it was a really moving, it was a really moving scene to watch him choke up. Uh, and say, right, and now he's becoming, you know, one of the most powerful people in the land in terms of being able to influence what kind of justice system we have. Um, and and for him, his Judaism and, and his status as, a, as an escapee of hate and violence is, will inform those decisions. And at our best, that's what it does. That's, that's what our history of suffering does, is it aligns us with the oppressed and the marginalized and the silenced and the weak and the vulnerable. Um, as my parent, my father used to say, Jews earn like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. Right. <laughs> so he, the, and he was very proud of that. He was very proud of that, that, um, that our, our history went at our best. Our history helps us to create um, out of the access that we have um, more justice and more equity and more protection for those who are vulnerable. Um, at our worst, it makes us paranoid and reactive and defensive and, you know, insular and xenophobic. So, um, all right. Are we good? George has a hand up. George Walker. George? Oh, and Mehmet has his hand up. Okay. George, where are you? Yes. Um, Ahasuerus' wife was also heroic. Yes. I wonder what happened to her uh, for her heroism for a different issue, I suppose. But, well, uh, it, it probably it probably wasn't good what happened to her, <laughs> like, right? She she was a hero, but she also lost all access to power um, and could have could have been killed. I don't know, but it probably wasn't good. Um, the results for her. <laughs> That's the consequences of uh, rebellion. That's right. Of saying, no, I won't be used for your entertainment and your pleasure. No. And, uh, yep. Um, Alexandra. So it's, um, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I'm actually in the middle of writing a paper on intersectionality and positionality. My second one in two weeks. 
and um, and I didn't see who mentioned the Merrick Garland thing, but it, uh, you know, Cory Booker. Uh, I remember it was prompted the question. It was really moving. Um, I'm happy to share it, or you can just access it if whoever hasn't seen it. But I'm yearning just for a little more context. I know you gave us some in the beginning, but what happens is we go from, you know, week to week and I'm missing part of the story. So even if you can recommend something I can do so I can have, because where I was at last was sort of, you know, we were still in the desert (laughs) and that was last week. And I remember we were talking about the tabernacle and the thread. Uh, but now I'm a little bit lost. So have we fast forwarded a good amount of time or no, what's happening? We are are we in Babylon? (laughs) We are, we are, we are not in Babylon. Okay. We are in Exodus. We are in the desert. We are getting instructions about how to build the portable shrine. That was the Mishkan that would be the place of God's presence resting at the center of the encampment of the Israelites. So Aaron is to serve as the high priest in the tabernacle. These are the clothing they are commanded to make for Aaron for that divine service. I'm comparing that to the text of the Megillah for Purim. Okay. I'm comparing the text of Exodus to the Megillah because I, well, just because it's fun, but also because um, I do believe that it's on purpose, that the writer of the Megillah is writing for people who knew Exodus and is wanting those resonances there that 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 Aaron is going to be in all of this splendor and glory for the service of the divine. Ahasuerus is wearing the same stuff just for himself, just for his own glory, just for his own vanity. All the gold, all the silver, all of that is just for his vanity, right? And then, but then we see Mordechai dressed in priestly garment and priestly garments. And then we see Esther also described as wearing royal garments. So then we're looking at all the ways the royal garments show up in, you know, and these, this language from Exodus shows up in the Megillah and, and exploring that and what it might mean for the author and what the message of the author might be. That's, that's what I'm trying that's to the connect. That's the connect. That's what I'm okay. trying to tie together. So it's my understanding, again, I apologize to my colleagues here because I just have a lot less context, but Purim and this story happened years later and we're just comparing the two. Correct. Okay. Correct. We're just comparing the text of the Megillah to Exodus because we believe the author of the Megillah knew knew the Jews knew Exodus and so used these colors and these descriptions on purpose. To to contrast the Mishkan and Aaron's role versus Ahasuerus, his palace, and the kind of culture that he uses all that for. Yes. And and, and then in that way, thanks, Alexander, for helping me make it a little more explicit, is that that's the comparison to do we want to live like Aharon and the priests and, and the Mishkan and pursue intimacy with God's presence? Or do we want to be a Hashverosh? And the author of the Megillah, I believe, is criticizing the Jews of Babylonia, is criticizing American Jews for their materialism. 
that they're not supporting the temple. They're not going to shul. They're not learning Torah. They're not doing mitzvot. They're not dedicating their lives to making themselves more wise and kind people. They are looking to buy a more expensive car. And where are we going to take our vacation this year? And you know where the Goldbergs went. So we have to beat that. And right. And we have to have a bigger house on a better street because that's the, that's the focus. And so I think that's what the writer of the Megillah is doing by juxtaposing the high priest and his role and what that does on behalf of the people and, you know, and the folks in Shushan. Yes. How astute. So what is the time difference between these, (laughs) you know, between when the Torah, this part of the, when the Torah is written and, and Purim and this, or, a long yeah, time. Well, okay. <laughs> That's so, why I was like, did I miss? A- no, you I mean, did I was not. here last week. No, you did not. So um, okay. the, the Purim story is after the destruction of the first temple, which is, that happened in 70 of the common era, right? right. Uh, sorry, 586 um, before the common era. Um, we're ta- the, the texts from Exodus are, are, some, are some old texts, but are much older. All right. Where are we going now? All right. Does somebody, Barry, did you want to say something? Yes. Um, I think the author of the Megillah is actually living in a, a kingdom of sorts that is under the protectorate of the Persian Empire, right? Well, it depends. If, if the author's in Jerusalem, Right. Uh, I, I believe it, at first it was just the protectorate of the Persian Empire before it collapsed. Right. Um, and so it's dangerous to write these things <laughs> under such circumstances. And also, I think we see here two uh, political factions of the marginalized peoples. We, we have Vashti as a woman who goes uh, on an open rebellion and just says no. And we see what happens to her. And then we see Esther as a, some sort of, uh, I don't know. Um, well, we, we should become, we should take places of power, um, have these conniving a little bit, and, and, and then we'll be able to survive. So I don't know if it's criticism, more of a message that you shouldn't go in open rebellion. Uh, you should be, you know, wiser. You should be a little bit, a bit more wily in your approach and always seek the places of power um, to protect yourself. Okay. And it's not me taking sides in this debate. <laughs> I yeah, don't know. No. We, well, we don't, obviously we don't know. Right. We don't know the, the agenda of the author. So we're all just guessing, but I do, I do believe there's criticism of uh, the culture of Shushan and of the character of Ahasuerosh um, as, you know, leaders uh, in that culture. And, and Haman is the constant threat. And that Ahasuerosh can be swayed like that by Haman and agree to destroy all the Jews. I, th- I do think there's a warning in there that the author is making to those people who think they're safe, you know, in Babylon. Like, don't, don't get too comfortable, people, because it takes one Haman, one, and you're done. Um, yes, but unless it's not you saying, have an Esther, right? 
is not is not saying sending these you know uh, uh, taglita buses over there and say you know come to Israel. He's saying you should take power. You should come as close as you can to where decisions are made. Okay. So, anybody else got your hand up that yeah. wants to talk? Judith, I just wanted to ask a question about the portability of the Aron Hodesh. Ours is in our sanctuary, and actually, we have one in the chapel that's a little less portable. But is that still a tradition in synagogues to have a portable? No, no. we did it just just in honor of tradition. Actually, no, no. We did it because we need it to move. We okay. have three. We have three. <laughs> For the same reason they did. Yes, we have three different stations where things plug into the floor in the sanctuary. We can be way up close to y'all. We can back up, or we can have it against the wall. And that was on purpose to be able to change the sanctuary as needed based on how large the event was, right, Right. the function, right. So on high holidays, that arc is all the way against the wall because we have chairs on the floor. Right. So the arc had to be able to move. It is, I would put portable in quotes, it is falling apart. Because however portable it was supposed to be has not worked out very well for the arc. (laughs) It is in bad shape. So we're going to be talking about what we're going to do. And actually, uh, here's an, a point of interest that I learned years ago that I had no idea about. Actually, the move was the other way. The more successful a Jewish community was, the more built in to the structure the ark is, and the larger the Sifre Torah and their crowns. Oh. If you look at communities that think they're safe, they have very big permanent arcs and right. huge Sifre Torah with huge crowns and huge silver ornaments. If you look at vulnerable Jewish communities, they have portable arcs with tiny little Torahs that they can take and run with if they need to. So the, you know, so the, the, move, the move is actually the opposite is to, is to have it feel permanent because then you're, you're expressing your sense of safety Thank right, you. as a Jewish community. Let's go to some text. So those were the words of Panina, Dr. Panina Feller um, that I uh, read before. And these words are the words of Miriam Edelman. Purim invites us to set aside a time in which we completely reverse our wardrobe, which in turn reverses our identity. It is an invitation to cross and reverse all the other dichotomies and uniforms of our lives as well. On Purim, we are using clothes against themselves to deny their power to box us in and simultaneously to redeem us from needing redemption. Purim makes us wonder if there is an authentic self at all or whether it is all just endless masks upon masks. Alexandra, this is to your point. Identity politics starts to ask the question, is there really a core identity at all? Or are we just a combination of identities layered on top of each other and intertwined? The fact that they, Kohanim, the priests, were intricate, wore intricate and expensive clothing amidst general simplicity, that they wore elaborate jewelry when no one else did so, 
indicates that biblical Judaism stressed the royalty of God. Just as God's servants dressed like royalty, so were we to relate to the entire ritual surrounding God as though God were a grand sovereign. In the early parts of this century, many rabbis donned clerical robes and stood on platforms high above their congregants to emphasize the dignity, majesty, and otherness of God and of sacred service. I'm so bummed that is not the case anymore. (laughs) And I... In our own day, Jewish worship has mo- is moving has been moving away from a primary concern with decorum and dignity. Instead, we seek community, warmth, and support. The way rabbis and cantors dress will continue to reflect the developing perspectives of future Jewish communities, suggesting how we perceive our relationships to each other, to our traditions, and to our God. The medium is the message, says Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson. Um, this goes back to an argument that's happening at every single liberal synagogue in this country. What is the bottom line of what's acceptable to wear to shul, Right. People wear flip-flops, they wear jeans, they wear shorts. Like what's, what's the bottom line on, in terms of what's acceptable? This argument is happening all over the place and has been happening since I've been the rabbi. There was a time where I would never, never have worn pants on the bima, ever. Always you wore a skirt or a dress. How rabbis dress, right, is reflective of the dignity, majesty, right? All that stuff. And that there was a bottom line for me. And that was no pants on the Bima. Now that's already changing, right? It's already changed for me. Like I have worn pants on the Bima, um, but usually not. Usually you'll see me in a dress. And that's, that's to this point that Rabbi, you know, Artson is talking about, about how what we wear reflects our station and how we understand our station um, and the work that we're about. here. All right. Aaron's clothing so richly described here must have been incredibly heavy to wear and hot in the desert. All of the symbolic weight of the vestments was made sensible to him physically. The garments reinforced his separateness, holiness, both to himself as well as to those who would see him. How could one be irreverent or frivolous with all of that on? And how could an Israelite behave badly before such regal physical reminders of the priest's role with God? We too put on clothes as costumes, armor, representations of ourselves and the roles we play or to which we aspire. Socially recognized appropriate clothes make it easier to gain recognition and respect, which helps us function in our daily lives. The right outfit lets us, in an English idiom that is surely not accidental, put on our dignity. And then on Purim, we deliberately take off our dignity and dress to be ridiculous. Not the rabbi, of course. The rabbi would never, never do such a thing. We wear inappropriate clothing, crossing gender. Dressing up as someone else helps us embrace the spirit and spirits of Purim. Our clothes shape how we see ourselves and thus how we behave. So the the importance here of people talking about um, about about the violation of norms that Purim is, right? How many times have you seen? And this is something I still haven't quite figured out. How many times do you see men dress as women for Purim? 
all the time. You don't see women dressing up as men on Purim. I don't get it. Like, I don't get, there's something there. I'm not sure what it is, but men love to dress up as women as a costume. It's like, why is that a costume? You, clearly you're just having fun breaking gender norms or something and don't want to admit it. But it's like, like being female is a costume. It's so bizarre to me. But anyway, um, but Purim is about, right, crossing the usual comfortable lines. And that's, that's the point of all masquerade, isn't it? Like, and people wear masks. Why do they wear masks? So that you don't know who I am when you're interacting with me. There is a liberation and a freedom stepping out of our normal garb, our normal, um, our normal fancy selves, right? Um, and like, so the, so she was saying, Edelman was saying, you know, like, no one dressed like that, or someone else referenced that. Like, no one dressed like that. All this stuff that's on Aaron is ridiculous in the heat. And in that world, people didn't dress like that. Only royalty did. And so there was something about all the weight of that that was, um, that was serious, right? That, that helped him take his role more seriously and other people to take uh, his role seriously. And that Purim is about Dafka taking that off um, and stepping out of that and stepping into um, silliness and stepping into even because we're, we're – uh, taught we're supposed to imbibe with alcohol. Well, people usually know what that's going to mean, right? Like it means we're going to act differently than we normally do also. Um, And I can remember growing up uh, in the Orthodox shul and my father would carry me on his shoulders. uh, And like, I would watch these men get shickered and like they would dance like with abandon. They, these men were, were holding arms and drinking and dancing and singing. And like, it was insane. It was insane. And I also understood very early that that was a sacred obligation, which was to do that. Edward Dreyfus is saying in New York, women wore mink coats to shul in 90, yeah, in 90 degree weather, right? And the, the preoccupation with clothing, for sure. Um, was one of the things that turned me away from Judaism as a kid, for sure. And of course, in the conservative shul, which is where we went after the Orthodox shul, um, women who were married needed to cover their hair somewhat, right? In the conservative shul, it was somewhat. um, And you did that with a hat. So I grew up and Rosh Hashanah was the time you got to see everyone's hats, right? And the, the women spent like thousands and thousands on these outfits with matching hats, which also turned me off. (laughs) Right. But Ms. Sultan is saying, maybe not such a bad idea during a pandemic, wear a hat. Um, Barry saying, right. Clothing as connected to our class, working class people couldn't wear long hair because it was dangerous around machines. There you go. Right. All these things that, that signal, class that signal our station that signal right a lot about who we are Purim is our opportunity to um to take that off and to um to play with uh, what it means to not rely on those um conventions if you will of culture and of class all right so um Chag Purim Sameach, a happy Purim. I hope that you will join us for services tonight. 
Um, I also, um, we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but, um, but truly I love that Purim really does celebrate the courage of Esther, um, who was not very Jewishly identified. <laughs> like, let's be honest, right? She's, she's, the, the king doesn't even know she's a Jew. Um, and, and it's a, so in, in some sense, whether it's a parody, a criticism, a warning, it's also a, a celebration of the courage of people um, who have assimilated uh, into the culture and have positions of power, but who are willing to take the risk to, uh, to use that power on behalf of others. And so, um, so I do want to give Esther her, her due and give her her credit. Uh, and we will be reading a little bit of the Megillah tonight and uh, just engage in a little bit of silliness because it's poor. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.